infrastructure software is having a renaissance. Cloud providers offer a wide range of deployment tools, including virtual machines, managed Kubernetes clusters, standalone container instances, and serverless functions. Kubernetes has standardized the container orchestration layer and created a thriving community. The Kubernetes community gives the cloud providers a neutral ground to collaborate on projects that benefit everyone. The two forces of cloud providers and Kubernetes have led to massive improvements in software quality and development practices over the last few years. But one downside of the current ecosystem is that many more developers learn how to operate a Kubernetes cluster than perhaps is necessary. Serverless tools are at a higher level than Kubernetes and can improve developer productivity. But a risk of using a serverless tool is the potential for lock-in and a lack of portability. Knative is an open-source serverless platform from Google, built on top of Kubernetes. Vil Aikas is a senior staff engineer at Google, who has worked at the company for 11 years. With his experience, Vil brings a rare perspective to the subject of Kubernetes and serverless and the infrastructure lessons of Google. Vil joins the show to discuss Knative and the motivation for building it and the future of serverless infrastructure. It was a great privilege to talk to Vil because he's worked at Google for a long time and brings so much experience to the conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. VLA, you are a senior staff engineer at Google. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having me. Today, I'm excited to talk to you about serverless workloads and the various ways that serverless can be engineered. Let's start off by defining that term. What is a serverless workload? Sure. That's a great question because there's a lot of buzz around serverless and there's also just as much confusion on what it means because it can mean various things for different people. For Knative, we have really started defining it as a developer-facing concept, which means that you as a developer do not have to worry about the underlying infrastructure. You can just focus on writing your software and solving business problems rather than worrying about dealing with the servers. What do these servers look like? How do you upgrade them and things like that? Why is it useful to omit the operational burden of operating a server? That's another great question. So while some people really do enjoy playing with the with the underlying infrastructure, for the most part, developers have told us fairly loud and clear that there's a lot of burden with it that comes with it. So while it's fun and easy to go ahead and get started with the, you know, bringing up a VM or if you want to go super hardcore and plug it in the rack and wire it together, setting up one is fine and easy. It's tricky to go ahead and keep it up and running and make sure that it's always up to date. What, what happens if you need to go ahead and all of a sudden your application that you write becomes super successful and you need to get 100 machines and now you need all kinds of tools and automation to go ahead and keep those up and running and make sure that they run smoothly and when things happen, somebody goes in and fixes things. So there's a very clear division of, of labor and roles and responsibilities. So by drawing the line, by saying that for the developers, you know what, if we can give you a nice illusion that you have one big computer, that has been received quite well. There has been a market shift towards usage of Kubernetes and towards usage of containers. These are still server abstractions, and there's already fatigue of people wanting to move their workloads to Kubernetes. And so somebody listening to this might be thinking like, oh, gosh, I'm already implementing my Kubernetes strategy at the company that I work at. I'm in the middle of doing this. And now you're telling me that I should just not use servers and maybe I should just be using these serverless <laughs> systems. So how would you comfort that kind of person? No, so th yeah, that's fantastic. So one of the things that we are doing with the Knative, so I actually was involved with the Kubernetes very early on myself. And so 
one of the things that Kubernetes, in my opinion, did quite well is it provided what I think of as the assembly language for the cloud-native computing. So it gave you really good, clean, very low-level primitives for being able to go ahead and get started with the cloud-native computing. Okay, so when you go and put all those things together, things work very nicely. And we have seen many, many, many fantastic solutions running on Kubernetes and best practices and everything else. With the K-Native, we are saying, great, let's go ahead and build something on top of those primitives that makes it more approachable for the developer. So I sometimes talk of it as the, you know, standard lib or libc on top of the k-native. So that's where we want to go ahead and codify and abstract away the best practices that various people in the community have learned about how to run Kubernetes and make those higher level constructs that are more easier to deal with for the application developer, because those abstractions are quite idiomatic, if you will, to what are their main concerns that they care about when they want to get their software up and running on the Kubernetes. So everything that you have done on the Kubernetes is still applicable it's still available to you and you can go ahead and go ahead and just start reducing some of the objects, if you will, in the Kubernetes that you don't necessarily have to care about. All the expertise that you have built on the Kubernetes still applies. So no worries. This is just uh, more goodness on top of Kubernetes. We're going to unpack the abstraction layer that Knative is sitting at because it's subtle and people might not understand it if we if we don't explain sure. it in, in the right order. So I want to start by talking about functions as a service. So these functions as a service systems exist in cloud providers. You have Google Cloud Functions, AWS Lambda. Explain what happens under the covers on the actual servers when I deploy a serverless function. Sure. So let's go ahead and take a Let's start it from the deployment side of things, where I have some software sitting on my laptop, for example, on, or my Pixelbook, and I want to go ahead and get it up and running into the cloud. So happily, I go in my Emacs, and I write up my function, and I at that point, I want to go ahead and say, please turn this raw source code into a executable code. So that's sort of kind of the first step. And at that level, that is a clear action that you as a user have to do. So there is something in the Knative called Knative build. So this is the responsibility of the build stack, if you will, is to go and take source code, whether it comes from your laptop, GitHub, Google Cloud Storage, or wherever your source code happens to be. And it takes those source codes and it runs the compilation and the packaging for you whether it's in the cloud or whether it's using a cloud service or whether it's in your own cluster, the first step is getting it into a executable container, so Docker image. And now that defines an immutable execution unit for your function. So that's the first step. Okay. And so there's also this event-driven model, this event-driven programming model Uh that is often tied to these serverless functions. Can you describe the connection between the event-driven model and the serverless functions as a service? Sure. So, and there again, there's a little bit of I'm just going to uh, explain just one little thing about that is is you're absolutely right that typically, so now that we have our function code sitting there is quite, it's fun, but how do you go ahead and actually execute it. And that's where the typically the eventing-driven comes into play. And in the K-Native, what we have done is we have decoupled the or allowed for a late binding of being able to say when something happens, say a new object is loaded into storage or something happens in your database, you want to be able to go ahead and decouple the definition of what happens from when it happens. So the, when we built our container or the function, nothing happens by itself. There's an explicit act of binding, if you will, that function to an event that occurs somewhere else. And that is how you go ahead and say, when something happens over in my event source or the event generator, that I would like that function over there to be invoked. Does that make sense? It does. Great. There has been a gradient 
of different standalone container deployment environments. So Google came out with Google App Engine a long time ago, and that could be, you know, people could say that's the first serverless yep. thing. There's also Heroku. I think Heroku did something similar by allowing these dynos to deploy your application that automatically scaled up and down. Dynos, as far as I know, were containers, yep. basically, under the hood. And then you have, more recently, these more programmable container instances, the long-lived container instances like Google, or sorry, Azure container instances or AWS Fargate. These are longer-lived container instances. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the serverless functions where when you deploy the serverless function, it doesn't immediately spin it up. It only spins it up when you actually want to demand it. So you have this gradient of how long the code is going to be in a running container where you're getting charged for it. And so the, so the scale up and the scale down, there's a gradient there. Can you talk about the the different, I guess, lifetimes or life cycles of ways that people can deploy code onto standalone containers? Sure. So yeah, we definitely have seen that there certainly is different ways of running your containers and there's different kinds of workloads. So for example, in the Kubernetes, you might do batch jobs and it still runs as a container. So it's very, it can be very long lived. But the case in point for you that you brought up is that is there something very specific about the fact that it is a function or it is just an application? And I'm just going to drill a little bit into that because one of the things that we have been thinking quite a bit with the K-Native is that what really makes, like from a developer standpoint, why is a function so different that when I write a function code, I have to go ahead and choose my tool set and my tool chain early on in the process when all I want to do is write some software and eventually I might want to tie it into eventing structure. Is that really that different from saying I want to tie it into a user invoking a web page, right? So that's that's the one thing we wanted to go ahead and really think about, like, why is it really different? And TLDR, we think <laughs> it's not. Right. And, and and the second point that you brought up is, like, the life cycle there, which is like, okay, well, is, is there a good reason why or something that makes it so different for the fact that a code runs for 10 seconds versus 10 minutes, right? And typically the reason for running long running things is that they might have some state associated with them, right? So typically the serverless workloads have been stateless. Now, this is where, again, you kind of squint your eyes a little bit and you say, well, according to the best practices with the microservices and everything else, you really should be building stateless microservices wherever you can. And so for many of the traditional microservice architectures, there really is not that much of a difference between a function and a microservice. Something calls you and you do something. And then if you rely on the existing existing services that your cloud or your IT department might do, then you can get very far from the software developer's perspective, defining your applications and your functions very similarly and having the same workflows and the same abstractions available to you. Because if you think about an application, you brought up App Engine, right? So if I were to go ahead and write my web app, I kind of want the same kind of characteristics out of that, which is pay as you go. So if nobody's using my service, let's hope that never happens. But if nobody's using my service, I shouldn't have to pay for that. And then on the other end, if all of a sudden I get a lot of requests coming to me because everybody loves it, then please, Mr. Cloud Provider or Mrs. Cloud Provider, spin it up for me as much as I need to because there really is no difference. Service these requests is really what, what, what should be the core competency of the platform of the serverless that gives you, regardless of whether it is a function or an application. Let's get into Knative. What is Knative? Great question. So Knative is really the building blocks and the abstractions for bringing serverless workloads into the Kubernetes. That is it in a nutshell. So one of the things that, again, with the Kubernetes, with the early APIs, there was a very principled set of abstractions that were really focused on, again, using the term assembly language for the cloud-native computing. So Knative brings very principled resource model 
into on, on top of Kubernetes to go ahead and target the application developer, not the operator, which typically has been kind of a split hat. So if you typically run on Kubernetes as an application developer, you're kind of wearing two hats. You're wearing a little bit of the operator hat and a little bit of the application developer hat. So we want to go and have a really clean resource model that allows you as an application developer to come in and give that operator hat to somebody else and not worry about it. So in order to build an understanding for people for why this is useful, I want to present two different companies. So let's say let's say one company is a database as a service company. Like let's say I've got this new NoSQL database that I have created and now I'm offering it as a service and the way that I'm offering it is like I've built Kubernetes and I have, you know, built provisioning systems for my my database. And then another company is, let's say, an insurance company, an insurance company where I've also provisioned Kubernetes and I'm running my application containers on top of Kubernetes. If I'm hearing you correctly, I think that, you know, the, the database company might want to think about Kubernetes as well as Knative, but the insurance company, they should only be writing application logic. They shouldn't have to think about configuring a Kubernetes cluster. And so would you say that's an accurate way of, of, of thinking about where somebody should be in terms of, in terms of their Kubernetes operation necessity? Yeah, I I, th- I think the the way at at the high level that is definitely a great way to go ahead and draw the split line there. I'll come back to the database company in just a little bit, but yeah, as far as the insurance companies, developers, you know, they should never have to think about what is a Kubernetes service and what is a deployment and things like that. They should be able to go ahead and focus on you know if if somebody, for example, is is writing some some software f- that is is doing risk analysis or something like that, then that should be their core competency and they should be able to focus on writing software that deals with that, not have to understand the intricacies of where it runs. Okay. And as as far as the database company, the one thing that they might want to do is go ahead and expose certain things about that database so that it's easier for the people or the developers that use that service, say on a Kubernetes cluster, to go ahead and extend that application or to more naturally to go ahead and react when something happens in there. So so, so back in the day, we had uh, stored procedures in the database. So if you would think about like when a new row is created something, you might want to go ahead and do something interesting with that. And sorry, now popping up the stack a little bit more when we talked about the late binding, that's a great way where you can go ahead and say the database company could go ahead and start, for example, firing off events when, say, new rows are inserted without having any idea who is consuming them or if anybody's consuming them, because if nobody's consuming it, is it, it's more like a tree in the forest. Nobody cares. If nobody's listening to them, nobody should care, but it should be available to you. So later on, the developer can say, I wish I would know when a new user is inserted in the database. And if that event is fired up, that's a great example of the late binding, where then they can go ahead and just write their function. And then later on, say, I am actually interested in those events. Does that make sense? Yeah, so we're seeing a few reasons here to think about serverless in some different contexts. So one is this stored procedure-like example, and I've seen this with a few infrastructure companies. So there's Auth0. Auth0 is an authentication-as-a-service platform, and they have something called Auth0 functions, where anytime somebody authenticates, you can have a function execute as a call in response to that authentication API request. And that's really nice because maybe the authentication only happens a couple times a day and you don't want to have this dedicated server that is watching for authentication events. You just want to have it execute only when the authentication happens. And you, you know, you also see this MongoDB also has a product called MongoDB stitch. And if you have a database hosted with MongoDB, maybe you want to execute code in response to a change in your database. And that is that is exactly the example you gave, where you have a stored procedure-like example. And so you want to ex- and you also want to have that code execute close to the database, probably, so it's, so it's maybe faster. Yep. 
and then so those those are a couple examples and also you've just got this I- this idea more generally where at the insurance company you don't want to have the like an actuarial data scientist have to think about how many containers are running like <laughs> yep. did, did i configure like the load balancer setting correctly and it's just like no <laughs> stay in your code and, and you should just be able to to write your code and have it scale up appropriately and you shouldn't have to think about kubernetes yep so these these different serverless experiences how does knative cater to them because i see i mean i see kind of a difference there like on, on the one hand with the the actuarial data scientist, maybe it's a, it's, you know, you've, you've got a very compute intensive system that needs to like stand up containers that are going to live for a long time. And then with auth zero or a serverless on database thing, it's more like short lived things. So tell me more about the, the architecture of Knative. Sure. So we talked a little bit about the build side of the things, right? There's also the, there's a couple of different ways that we have broken up the Knative. So it might be useful because we only covered the piece on how to turn source into a running container. So maybe I'll spend a little bit of time talking about the serving side of things, because I think that one allows us to go ahead and tackle what the developer experience is for the user, or did you actually want to go and go into how is it implemented on the Kubernetes side of things? I'm happy to talk about either one. Let's start with implementation, and then you can talk about usage. Great. Okay. Yeah. So within the Kubernetes, there is a way to go ahead and extend the Kubernetes API. So Kubernetes has a very specific way that the resources are handled, and there's a standard way of describing them. So each Kubernetes object has has a type, if you will. So I am a pod or I am a load balancer. And then it has a spec where the spec is where you tell the Kubernetes how you would like the world to look. Okay, so that's your specification. And then the last piece of the Kubernetes model is a status where the object then relays its status back to you as a user. So you can see, for example, that, okay, the pod is up and running or no, the pod is not running because it has a, the image can't be pulled, for example. Okay, so that is kind of the API model. The way these are implemented is that there is the object spec, and then there's always a controller. So the controller or the reconciler is responsible for looking at those objects and then making the world match that or die trying. So in the case of the K-Native, we have extended that model. So our objects look exactly like native, okay, just native Kubernetes objects. And we have our own controllers that then watch those objects. Okay, so this is this model is 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 built on top of uh, CRDs, custom resource definitions, which is a standard Kubernetes way of extending the Kubernetes API. Okay, and the last piece for CRDs is something called a webhook that allows the platform to go and ensure that only well-valid and well-formed objects are are entered into the database. So the reconciler or the controller can only go ahead and deal with valid objects so that nothing in there comes in. So that was a mouthful. So let me just uh, summarize really briefly. So on the Kubernetes side for Knative, we have a few controllers that watch for these objects that I talked about. So since I have mentioned build, there is a build CRD that when a user creates, it goes in to the webhook, webhook validates it to make sure there's no typos and you know think things are sane. And then it gets thrown into the API server of the Kubernetes, which is backed by an etcd. But then our controller for the build is watching for types of built objects. It looks at it and says, ah, okay, here's a new build. I haven't done anything. So it looks at that, the spec for that, and says, you know, let's say you gave it your source code from the earlier example from a GitHub. It would say, ah, okay, I need to go pull that code from GitHub, pulls the GitHub over and, you know, builds it. And because nobody ever makes mistakes, it's going to work right the first time. And a container is produced. And then the controller will update the status and saying like, okay, I did that thing you did, and here's your Docker image. Please go fetch it from some registry, okay? So this one basically describes how the objects turn into 
actual resources. Now, the kinds of resources we care about is not only builds, but we also have to go ahead and worry about routing things to the correct location. So if, for example, in the case of the, the insurance company taking in user login requests and everything else, we want to make sure that those requests actually show up, whether it's a function or whether it's your, your, your application, they go in the right places. And for those ones, we use Istio today as the default ingress gateway so that when a request comes in we program the istio so again you as a k native user will never see istio say you don't have to go in and you know do envoy configuration and things like that you can just say you know when when a user shows up on this url please invoke that function over there or my application over there okay let's say i'm building a cdn like i'm i'm a company that builds a cdn and I want to develop a serverless platform for executing functions that are related to content on that CDN. So if I wanted to use Knative to build my own serverless platform, what do I need to do? Sure. So just to ask a little clarifying question there, are you thinking about exposing those functions as something that the user, so somebody who puts the content into your (laughs) CDN, that they can do certain things when things happen there? Or is it more for you as the operator of the platform to go ahead and be able to go ahead and extend the system? It's for the developers. So let's say like this is is a developer-focused CDN and developers want to be able to resize their image, for example. And it's like a very flexible... Yeah. Yeah. Great. So a couple of cases having dabbled actually in that area a little bit myself. So there's a couple of things that you might want to go ahead and expose to them. For example, if you have if you are pushing in a lot of things into the CDN, say you have a, a whole website that you're putting in, you probably don't want to go ahead and push the images in there and then, you know, trickle them in. So for example, let's say I have, you know, ten thousand images. I'm overloading the term images, but I have ten thousand well Let's call them images. So I have 10,000 images. I push them in there. If one of them fails, would you still like to be able to go ahead and say, flip the content over to it? And in those cases, you might be able to go ahead and say something like when a user initiates a, say, an upload for the authoritative content for the CDN, they might be able to set up things like, please tell me when certain things happen, right? So like, for example, when all the content has been pushed, say, to all the locations on the edges, right? That might be something that you might want to care about. The other one might be when you can say things like like your resize example is you might say, okay, well, I don't actually want you to go ahead and have to worry about things like, you know, giving me all the videos or images in the thumbnail formats. And, you know, I don't want you to have to worry about videos coming in and you putting in subtitles. So one thing you might want to be able to say is say, you upload the original image or the video or whatever you're doing. And then once it has completed, you might be able to go and set up events like, oh, if it is a video of certain size, please fire off these 10 functions where they might be doing things like transcodings and then the user would just provide the transcoding function that would only be invoked once the image has been successfully uploaded and you know like checksummed and made sure everything is good to go so then the user again can focus only on the hey i know i'm getting a good known good video and i can just focus on running the transcoder or the subtitler or the uh, image thumbnailer on it mm-hmm. yeah and and the the nice thing is that what you, you know the, the where the k native comes in in this case is that there could be a cluster for example that you could be operating on behalf of the user if they don't want to go and run their own cluster so that again they would just be focusing on the k native api and they would just say you know akin to you know when new video shows up here's my github repo that i want you to invoke at the very highest level or if they want to go and run their own containers they could just say okay please execute this function for me. So they wouldn't have to know anything more except operate at the source code level. And as the serverless function operator, if if we're building the CDN, you and I, what do we gain from using Knative? Like, what does that do for us as opposed to, I don't know, doing this serverless platform some other way? Ah, that's a great question. There's a few different answers to it. So one of them is that it gives you a little bit, actually a lot more freedom because Knative is an open platform so that you can run this anywhere, 
So we might be able to, for example, host that on different cloud providers for resiliency. Well, there's very, very many, many reasons. You might also want to go and host it in-house. Also, you might have a customer who says, oh my goodness, my data is, well, this might be a bad example because it's going on the CDN, but let's play with it. I need to go ahead and run this in my own data center for something, right? So by having a portable workload definition, it means that the customer doesn't have to learn new. We don't, you and me as a CDN operators do not need to expose the customers the different cloud providers' intricacies because we can give them the K-native API that is portable across the different clouds. I've done interviews with a number of different companies or open source projects that are working on open source serverless systems that deploy on top of Kubernetes. There's Fission, there's Kubeless, there's FN, there's a bunch of these things. They differ across some different characteristics. The one that stands out is their approach to the cold start problem. I'm sure there are other dimensions. Tell me how you see Knative relative to the other open source serverless systems. That is a great question. So one of the hopes and dreams for the Knative is the fact that all of those projects are solving many of the very similar and I'm going to call them boring, not in a bad way, but in a sense that these are the problems that are not something that we should all be solving differently. Okay, This is the core competency of the serverless platform. So if the community solves those problems together, if you think about the plumbing, then we can go ahead and build way better serverless platforms and add value at the top instead of go ahead and everybody solving, you mentioned cold start, for example. So if we bring together a community and go ahead and solve, the, for example, the cold start problem in a way that go, allows us to grow not only the serverless, but also the Kubernetes community, then everybody benefits from this. And there's, you know, the feedback that we have gotten from various people, for example, the trigger mesh folks who have been very, very active in the Knavery community, as well as like IBM, OpenVisc folks, and, and, and very many experts in this very area. We are focusing on solving those problems together as a community. And it's going to go ahead and allow us as a community to go ahead and then build higher level, cooler things on top rather than everybody kind of reinventing the wheel at the, for example, the cold start level. Were there design decisions that you needed to make with Knative that diverged from the other projects? Because you could have just picked up one of those other projects and latched onto it and said, this is the one that, that Google is going to work on. But instead, you, you, you said, okay, we've got Knative, and it's, it's, this is the one that we're going to focus on. So there's there's few different things that kind of led into it. We did spend a lot of time looking at it and looking at the platform, looking at the existing landscape. And the one thing that, well, there's a couple of reasons for it, but one of them is, is something that I mentioned a little bit before, which is we don't necessarily see a difference between, say, applications and functions. And there was a lot of... This is what I kind of mentioned, which is is when you come into the system as a developer, you have to make a choice up front, which is, I, I know I'm going to be writing this as a function. I personally view kind of the developer space as more of a, not either or, I view it more as a continuum where you might have a monolith application that is exposing, say, you know, 10 endpoints. So it handles all of your application logic in one. And then on the other spectrum, you might have 10 independent functions, right? But in the middle, for example, you have things like cooperating functions and, and, you know, they need to be all rolled out as one and so forth. So we wanted to go ahead and really start thinking about the, the fundamental primitive objects that would allow us to go ahead and tackle both problems at the same time so that, so that the application as well as the function writers could all benefit from this. So that if I start with the function and I decide that, ah, oh, well, you know, it actually makes sense to go ahead and bundle up things into it and it starts growing into a bigger program or vice versa. I have a monolith and I'm going to start pulling things apart from there. It shouldn't require me to rethink the way I approach the problem set or requiring new set of tools and everything else. So with these object models, we were hoping to go ahead and unify the application 
developer because it is not just applications and functions, kind of like Emacs and VI battles. That's so beautifully said. And how closely does that relate to the cold start problem? Because it feels like if I've got short-lived container functions that just need to execute occasionally and there's not like a strict SLA on them, then I can just have them scale down to zero. And then when they actually need to be called, they just get spun up and they get executed. But on the other side of the spectrum, you have my entire monolithic application that I want running all the time. And so I can't afford to have the cold start problem when a user request happens. How closely is the design of Knative related to that cold start problem? So what we have done is we have been able to go ahead and call. So first of all, let me say about the the, the application also. It also applies to things like scale up and scale down and everything else. So there's different kinds of ways of scaling up. So it is not only applicable to functions, but if you have an application that actually can scale as the user request comes in, there is not a cold start problem there, but there also is a scale up event or scale down event and whatnot. So we wanted to go and make sure that those apply again both to the functions and applications the same because you probably want your application to scale up as well faster right nobody ever said make it slower as far as the cold start problem there's there's been a lot of research in it we at google have done a bunch of work on this many of our friends have done things like that as well and there's been various approaches to it so what we are doing is is solving this as a community effort and making sure that the object model and the architecture reflects this cleanly so that you can choose to go ahead and take advantage of your particular platforms implementing the Kubernetes if you have different ways of speeding things up, for example. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. So what we wanted to do is make it into a component that can be used all by itself, just like we started with the autoscaler, because when we looked at the Kubernetes autoscaler, it had some limitations that would not allow us to use it as is. So we have a autoscaler and we have a way to go ahead and extend that autoscaler or to plug it into it. Joe Burnett gave a fantastic talk, if that's your area of curiosity Mm. over at the KubeCon, because that's a full-blown talk in itself and it was a kubecon in seattle last uh, december about kubernetes autoscaling this is about k-native autoscaling how to plug it how to extend it and everything else and this is you could do a full talk on that (laughs) but anyway so so that's part of the reason why we've been carving out these rather than saying you take everything you take k-native or nothing is that it's very composed into pieces that have clear set of roles and responsibilities, and they're very principled objects so that you can go ahead and come in and either replace a piece, you can extend it, you can plug it, and you can choose to only use certain pieces of the K-native. So, so there's some people who come in and say, like, I really like your stuff, but I don't want your build. Thank you very much. There's reasons why I need to build my stuff the way I do or, you know, regulations and everything else, and it's totally fine. It's great. You can use the other parts of K-Native, but it is not a traditional do it this way or else. Let's talk about those three components of K-Native. You have build, eventing, and serving. Explain how these three components work. Sure. So the build components responsibility, surprisingly, is taking source code (laughs) and turning it into runnable containers, as you might have guessed from the name. So This, again, is a very good set of roles that you as a developer might not care about. You just want to write your software. And you don't necessarily want to be running things like, you know, Docker builds on your machine, or you don't necessarily want to run it within your cloud. You might just want to say, turn this into source, right, into a runnable image. So we talked a little bit about the build and image earlier on, so I think we might have covered that. But... The serving stack is responsible for taking incoming requests and routing them to the appropriate handler. I'm just going to be vague on the handler for for now because I don't want to overlook the term, whether it's a function or an app, but let's call it handler. So the serving stack introduces a couple of different resources that you probably as a developer care about. One of them is what is called a configuration. Right. So configuration is your code. 
Okay, let's call it your code because it can be either image or source in this level, but let's call it your code. And then it also bakes in the configuration of your code. The configuration represents what you as a developer care about, which is please run my code with this configuration. What happens underneath is that gets turned into a revision. The revision is immutable. So this one is we basically take a snapshot of your code, your binary, as well as the configuration. According to the best practices, you never, ever, ever modify running code. You make changes to it so you have a history and you can run back to it and so forth. So revision is immutable snapshot of your stuff in time. Okay. And then the other piece you care about is route my stuff into it. So if I go ahead and say, okay, I'm running Knative and I want to go ahead and take my example.com slash login, I want to wire it into the, the revision I just created. That's really all I care about. And at the highest level, we have something called a K-native service or K-service, which bundles those things together. It's more of a convenience function so that you as a user come into the day zero experience and just put a pointer to GitHub and saying, run this for me and don't screw it up. So we handle that. But those are the four objects that we care about. And the nice thing about this model is that it, it allows you as a developer come in and start with the day zero get up and running in, you know, very quickly and get your code up and running. And you never see any of the underlying concepts for things like, you know, traffic splitting or anything else like that. But as you grow, many of the systems or some of the systems out in the world have a very appealing day zero and maybe even day one characteristics, which means that you can get started. And then once you start go ahead and actually running the system and maintaining it and upgrading and things like that, then you have to go ahead and jump out of that world and do something totally different. And with the Knative, the serving stack is responsible for growing with you. So the reason why we have broken the object model into routes and revisions is because there's a big difference when you are, say, a single developer and you might just push your code, whereas if you're running a big company where you might have an SRE organization that is responsible for being able to go ahead and do things like, you know, experiments. You might want to go and do things like say, oh, I have this new version of code that the developer pushed out. Developer might not, you might not want to allow developers to flip all of your traffic at the, you know, Friday night at 10 o'clock just because it seems like a great idea. And you might, you might have roles and responsibilities set up such that developers can push code all they want and they can do their tests against it. But none of the user facing traffic is affected by this. So these are all the concerns of the serving stack as far as the incoming traffic. On the back end, the serving stack also handles things like zero to one scaling, auto scaling, making sure that things are up and running, health checked, and things like that. So there's kind of two pieces in that. And I think I kind of covered already the auto scaling and the call start things, but those are all handled by the serving stack. Does that give you a good enough picture for the serving stack? Absolutely. And it reminds me some of a conversation I had recently with David Aronchik from the Kubeflow project. Uh-huh. And because these problems that you're describing where you have, for example, a machine learning model that is operated one way when you first deploy it, and then that operation will change over time, or it needs to scale up, or you need to do traffic splitting to A-B test different machine learning models. You don't want to have to go through this complex re-architecting of how you're deploying that machine learning model. It would be much better if the platform itself was taking care of that so that you could just think about the machine learning attributes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that is precisely the reason why we spend a lot of time working on the object model and making sure we get it so that it's idiomatic to the user and it allows you to have clear set of roles and responsibilities. So as a developer, I can just write my software. I have all the tools necessary for me to go ahead and run my code, but I don't have to worry about exactly the things you said. How does it happen? I don't care. Just do this thing for me. You've been at Google for 11 years. When you look at the design of Knative, are there some lessons that Google has learned that come to mind that you're bringing into Knative? Yeah, there's there's 
A lot. <laughs> so a lot of the, 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 there's again, for example, with the App Engine, right? So uh, App Engine was truly the original serverless platform, in my opinion. And I also personally spent a bunch of time in the cloud storage. And one of the things that became very clear early on in that land for me was when people were asking about things like, hey, we need listing to be faster. And I was like, well, why, why do you need it to be faster? They were like, well, so I can see if there's a new object there. So I scratched my head and I was like, well, that seems, I think we can do something a little bit better. How about if I tell you if there's a new object there? And they were like, oh, you can do that? I said, well, I can write that. <laughs> and it was like, so it was like this whole event driven thing was was the ability, which is it's, hmm. it's instead of sitting there and polling things, it's just like, I tell you something. So that was the object notification we did for cloud storage back in the day. And it was very, very popular. But anyways, so there's there's a lot of operational aspects that we have done over at Google running container workloads forever. So a lot of those learnings we first exposed in, in Kubernetes, right? And then the second point that we have done there is, is really said, okay, great. Again, just going back to my assembly language anecdote, if you will. And it is not a, a, a diss. It's 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 a good thing. But really is is being able to go and then take those things and codify them into best practices. And this is not only at Google, by the way, I just want to point out because we have a very vibrant community and very a lot of experience from many, many folks in the industry that have been running big, big workloads and clusters and, and, and serverless. So so Google is bringing definitely things in the table, but we are not alone. I just want to point that out. And so there's a lot of operational experience that we have there. We also have a lot of understanding on what does it mean to really run serverless at scale, you know, whether it's app engine, whether it's cloud functions. And we also understand what a model looks like where you rely heavily, extremely heavily on everything being microservices so that, you know, you don't really have so much state floating around everywhere where if you can go and start doing these loosely coupled services together, it makes for a really, really nice user experience. And then, of course, there's Istio that that allows us to go ahead and not worry about every application developer having to worry about authentication and authorization because it's tricky, right? So let's go ahead and not worry about that. So there's a lot of these best practices that we want to make sure that our developer friends or developers like myself can go ahead and do the thing they care about, which is write code, write great software that makes people happy. Google Cloud Storage, you mentioned that you uh -huh. had worked on that. That's the object storage in, in Google That's Cloud, correct. right? Yeah. Yep. Like the bucket yep. storage? Yep. Blob store, yeah. So I presume that within Google, there was some sort of object storage that developers could use like internally before Google Cloud Storage made it an external experience, right? That's correct, yep. So why, why did it take the... If the external developers to say, hey, we would love to have some sort of event-driven model, does it surprise you that that demand didn't come from internally before you know the Google Cloud demands on it? Yes and no. This is my gut feeling, right or wrong. Yeah. It wouldn't be the first or the last time I'm wrong. But Google has, there was a lot of batch processing that the Blob Store was used for initially. So very, very large, large items. So if you think videos and everything else, so it was lending itself more in the batch processing land rather than, you know, very event driven. Hmm. That's just my gut feeling. That's so interesting. It sounds like there were probably internal benefits for for starting to, you know, when Google, because you've been, since you've been there 11 years, you've seen the rise of Google Cloud. So you've probably seen the benefits of externalizing into a cloud provider, there's probably some learnings that have, have transmuted to the internal infrastructure too, right? Oh, definitely. It, it has been mutually beneficial transition. I don't know transition is the right word, but it has been, it, it, it is fantastic to go ahead and get more, be able to go ahead and talk so much more freely with the customers. I mean, that is one thing that I truly enjoy is talking to developers and customers and users and partners and being able to share so, you know, our learnings and, and, and then be able to go and learn from them as well so that it isn't just a, shall we say, internally focused where all the users are internal and it's a different mindset. And I think that you, you touched on that 
very, very nicely, but it's a different mindset when you're producing software that is used by your own developers that all understand it and they are expected to work within a certain, I don't want to say mindset, but they have a certain set of tools and things that are available to them. Whereas when you go into the outside world, you're like, well, hey, why doesn't this work on, on you know, this, this rando thing off of the interwebs that I just found, <laughs> right? It's really cool, but I want it to work. And it's like, yeah, why doesn't it work? So we've seen the adoption of Kubernetes by all the cloud providers and by many other companies who are not cloud providers. And I'm wondering how you think Knative adoption will affect different cloud providers and different organizations. You know, in the, in the next two or three years, what are we going to see in terms of impact of Knative? Ooh, let me look at my crystal ball. Yeah. So, so my, my hopes and dreams are that it, it, it really is going to go ahead. And, and we have seen early signs of this already, where it really is going to go ahead and be the, the, the new target way that the application developers think about getting software running into the cloud, regardless of whose cloud it is. As long as it's got Knative, it's got Kubernetes, then it really is an easy way for the developers to come in. So I expect that because we have been able to pool all of our resources together and focusing on what I call the boring problems, then the platform is going to go ahead and you know get better and better and better. But where I really see the excitement coming in is at the higher level. It's like, what are the kinds of tools and, and applications that people are going to be building on it, right? So if we right. think about the Kubernetes, like, you know, when we first open sourced it, it's like, what is this thing, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and then people are like, you know, putting things on top of it. And, and now again, we are getting Knative, which simplifies things and makes it, in our opinion, of course, much more delightful to use so that now then people can go and come in and build really neat things on top of it and make things even better. So I'm hoping that this makes the software writing approachable and really large-scale distributed computing available to people without having to worry about being an expert in it. It's more like Visual Basic was awesome because it basically allowed people that, you know, they're not computer scientists write software. And I kind of, I'm hoping that by Knative and serverless computing paradigms, we can go ahead and let people to start tinkering and writing software that they don't necessarily need to understand about all the things underneath there, but they can build cool stuff. That's what I want to see. Help people write cool stuff on top of Knative. Veal, I'm excited for the same future that you are describing. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Wow.